Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Atlanta, 2003. Club chaos was packed with people. Typically a slow night for dancing, their weekly hip-hop night drew celebrity clientele and a line out the door. The most notorious guest on November 11th was more than a local celebrity. He was practically a legend. Big Meech Flinnery, head of the Black Mafia family, surrounded by his loyal gang. They all wore matching diamond BMF pendants on gold chains, drinking bottle after bottle of high-priced champagne. Suddenly, the mood in the club soured. A woman in their entourage was being harassed by an ex-boyfriend. He tried to drag her away from the group, not wanting her to be associated with the notorious BMF, but she refused. Big Meat stepped in, telling the ex-boyfriend to cool off and leave the woman alone. But he refused, stepping up to Meach. The other BMF members quickly surrounded, ready to defend their leader. But before it could escalate, Meech snapped his fingers, summoning club security. The man was tossed out without another word. Meech popped a new bottle of champagne and resumed partying. When the club closed at 4 a.m., Big Meech and his crew rolled out into the parking lot, but the group stopped short when they saw the jilted ex-boyfriend leaning on the hood of Meech's Cadillac. He had a friend with him now. Both sides pulled their pistols and gunshots rang out. And when the bullets cleared, a man lay dead. Hi, I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the Parcast Network. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld and why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them. 
and how it changed the community around them. This is our second episode on Demetrius Big Meech Flannery and the Black Mafia family. Last week, we tracked the rise of Big Meech and his brother Terry from Detroit street pushers to two of the largest drug distributors in the United States. With lifetime profits reaching nearly $300 million, Big Meech and his brother started attracting the attention of the DEA and FBI. This week, we'll look at the investigation that finally brought them down. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. By 2003, the Black Mafia family had established a massive drug distribution network across the U.S., spanning from California to Texas, Detroit, St. Louis, and of course, Atlanta. Through their cartel connections, they were able to purchase kilos of cocaine for pennies on the dollar. The raw cocaine was brought to California via Mexico, then sent to various BMF processing labs across the U.S. The labs cut the bricks for distribution, also converting a portion of the drugs into crack cocaine. A fleet of vehicles equipped with secret compartments then transported the drugs back out for distribution. This method made the brothers millions in a few short years. By the early 2000s, Big Meech and the Black Mafia family had become one of the most successful American cartels. And as more and more money rolled in, Big Meech saw no problem with flaunting his wealth. Meech relished his ability to buy anything and everything he wanted. Cars, jewelry, clothing, champagne. While the BMF became known as a well-organized drug machine, Meech built a reputation for lavish and exorbitant spending. This didn't sit well with Terry, who was trying desperately to keep a low profile. While Meech had distanced himself from the day-to-day operations of their drug trade, Terry was very hands-on. He personally ensured that the bricks of raw cocaine made it safely across the U.S. border to be shipped out of L.A. He feared that if Meech continued his hedonism, it would bring the feds down on all of them. What Terry didn't realize was that the feds were already taking notice. DEA agent Jack Harvey had been investigating Big Meech since 1998 as the prime suspect in a drug-related murder case. However, the more Harvey dug into the matter, the more he realized that Big Meech wasn't an ordinary drug dealer. He quickly understood the extent of the Black Mafia family's vast drug trafficking network. By all accounts, Meech and his brother Terry were the leaders. In early 2001, Harvey followed leads to a white mansion the BMF used as a safe house 20 miles outside of Atlanta. But by the time he got there, the house was abandoned. Over two years later, in June of 2003, Harvey got a call that the White House was active once again. More than just active, a huge crowd was gathering. He immediately went to investigate. When he arrived at the location on June 23rd, 
The once abandoned house was packed with people. A party was raging. Cars lined both sides of the street. Harvey noticed several men in black BMF shirts with huge diamond chains around their necks. When he asked a partygoer whose house this was, they said, That's Meech's place, man. He runs the house, along with his crew. Harvey immediately returned to headquarters to file for a search warrant. He was sure there was enough evidence in the house to put Meech and his gang away. But the judge determined there wasn't enough probable cause. His warrant was denied three days later on June 26, 2003. Luckily, another break in the investigation came just three months later. On September 7th, one of the BMF's high-ranking members called 911 to report that he'd just shot and killed a home invader. William Doc Marshall had been an invaluable member of the BMF since the late 90s, acting as a de facto CFO. He operated a car rental company, Exquisite Empire, through which he laundered money, falsified car registrations, and oversaw drug shipments for the gang. Several of his rental cars had been outfitted with secret compartments for moving drugs and money across state lines. Police had already suspected that Doc's business was involved in illegal activity. He had been under surveillance for almost a year by the organized crime unit's detective, Bryant Burns. When the 911 call came in, Burns joined the rest of the police on the scene. Officers were already combing the townhouse when Burns arrived. He recalled that Doc looked nervous as he watched the police search the house, like he had something to hide. Burns noticed that the wood paneling on the walls was slightly misaligned in one room. He started to fiddle with the wall when it suddenly swung open, revealing a giant safe. In the crawl space next to the safe, he found a brick of cocaine and a single shoe. Burns started to put the pieces together. He surmised that Doc's townhome was a drug safe house. The room-sized vault had once held hundreds of bricks of cocaine, which would also explain the motive of the attempted robbery. The safe had apparently been emptied before the police arrived. It was done so quickly that someone had lost their shoe in the process and kept running. With this discovery, Burns could file a search warrant for the entire property. He found a cache of documents about the inner workings of Exquisite Empire, including employees' names and phone numbers. More importantly, he found an accounting ledger. While it was clear to police this was a record of drug shipments and payments, the ledger was written in code with false names and aliases. Buyers were referred to by nicknames like E and Country. Locations had names like The White House, The Gate, and Space Mountain. Between the ledger and the brick of cocaine, police had more than enough evidence to arrest Doc on drug charges. Burns tried to convince Doc to help the police build a case against Meech and the BMF, but he refused. Still, with these ledgers, the police now had an initial picture of the BMF organization and clues to who the major players might be. On October 28, 2003, the DEA, IRS, and the Organized Drug Enforcement Task Force met and formed a joint investigation called Operation Motor City Mafia. Their goal was to track down the identities of those listed in the ledger and bring down the BMF 
one by one. But while federal investigators were focused on decoding the ledger, Atlanta police were about to stumble into an investigation that would lead directly to Big Meech himself. We'll see how Meech garnered police attention right after this. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now, back to the story. Following the discovery of a drug ledger in the fall of 2003, Law enforcement had a close eye on Big Meech and the Black Mafia family. Police launched Operation Motor City Mafia on October 28, 2003, in an effort to decode the ledger and bring down the organization. But so far, nothing concrete connected the ledger to the operation's main target, the BMF's leader, Big Meech. In a stroke of luck for law enforcement, Meech's own actions would soon tie him closer to the investigation. On November 11, 2003, an infamous Atlanta dance club called Club Chaos was at capacity. Their featured hip-hop Mondays drew crowds in the hundreds and plenty of local celebrities. Big Meech had a huge entourage in the club with him, at least 50 people deep. But it didn't stop Anthony Wolf Jones from trying to storm past his soldiers. Wolf was on a mission for revenge. As rapper producer Sean P. Diddy Combs' favorite bodyguard, Wolf was a local celebrity in his own right. He had already spent two years in jail for the attempted murder of a police officer in 1991 and had been witness to several other crimes throughout the 90s. Tonight, however, he found himself on a collision course with the BMF. Wolf was looking for his ex-girlfriend. He had heard she was partying with BMF members that night and was concerned for her safety. Around 1.30 a.m., he found her in the BMF corner and tried to force her to leave, but she refused. Enraged, Wolf grabbed her by the neck and tried to pull her out of the club. Meech saw the altercation and stepped in to break it up. When Wolf tried to argue with him, Meech had Wolf thrown out of the club by security. Meech and his crew resumed their drinking and partying. Outside in the parking lot, Wolf called his friend Lamont Riz Gertie to come meet him at Chaos. They waited together for Meech and his crew to emerge. The club closed around 4 a.m. When the BMF stepped outside to head to their cars, Wolf ambushed them. He and Riz shot at Meech and his men, who pulled their own guns to return fire. Clubgoers screamed and ran for their cars as almost 40 shots were exchanged. Wolf was hit in the chest and left bleeding out on the pavement. Riz was killed instantly. Meech and the rest of his crew fled. A few of the BMF had minor gunshot wounds. Meech himself was hit square in the buttocks. Emergency services quickly arrived and police set up a crime scene. Wolf was taken to Grady Memorial Hospital, where he later died from his injuries. Police were now investigating a double homicide. 
Investigators began questioning witnesses. They were struggling to determine the identity of the shooter until a young woman called 911 with a tip. She wouldn't give her name, saying she was scared for her life, but she identified the shooter as Michi. This quickly led investigators to Big Meech. They found him at North Fulton Regional Hospital, receiving treatment for his bullet wound. They placed him under arrest and took him in for questioning. Meech claimed he was a victim, not an aggressor. He said, I didn't see anything, heard some shots ring out and ran. Then I got hit. Ultimately, police would fail to bring assault charges against Meech, as the location of his injury did suggest that he was running away from the gunfire. If he acted at all, it was presumably in self-defense. However, the investigation finally gave DEA agent Jack Harvey justification to search Meech's White House. On November 17, 2003, Harvey searched the property with a team that included Agent Brian Burns from the Doc Marshall investigation. Officially, they were looking for the murder weapon used to kill Wolf, but Harvey was hoping to find Meech's drug supply instead. By the time they got there, the house was mostly cleaned out and no one was home. Left behind was lavish, custom-made furniture, BMF apparel, gold chains, and portraits of Meech and his brother Terry. In the home office, police found an electronic money counter, several bags of rubber bands, and a ledger. As Burns looked through the pages, he recognized many of the aliases listed. They matched the names on the drug ledger found in Doc's house. Burns also found car registration paperwork for 19 vehicles, most of them limos, all in the names of Exquisite Empire employees. In addition, several of the phone numbers in this ledger regularly called numbers that had already been under surveillance by Detroit police. They were being monitored as part of a DEA investigation into a cocaine-dealing gang called the Puritan Avenue Boys. Police also happened to find a photo of Meech and Terry posing with the leader of the Puritan Avenue Boys, Damone Brantley. Brantley himself was indicted on cocaine conspiracy charges three days after the search of Meech's house. Investigators were now convinced that Meech and Terry were much bigger players than they had anticipated. As the investigation against the brothers was heating up, their relationship was under strain. Beyond Terry's frustrations with Meech's attention-drawing lifestyle, they disagreed about some aspects of their drug distribution. Both brothers would take a small portion of each brick and replace it with some filler, using the excess they removed to make crack cocaine. But Terry would dilute his cocaine even further to make it last longer, while Meech preferred to keep it at a higher purity. A reputation started to emerge. If Terry's drugs were a moet, Meech's drugs were crystal. Meech's number two, Chad Jabo Brown, started advertising the difference in their products to Terry's customers, trying to convince them to buy from him instead. When Terry got word of this, he went after Jabo. He confronted him at a party in front of everyone. Humiliating Jabo was the same as humiliating Meech himself. Meech thought his little brother's behavior was disrespectful. If he had a problem, he should have come to talk to him directly. In early 2004, Terry moved permanently to L.A., cutting all personal ties with his brother. 
From then on, the two solely communicated through intermediaries. Ironically, this schism between the brothers helped to keep the DEA at bay for a time. The task force was able to tap Terry's phone early on in the investigation, recording several conversations implicating him in crimes. By tracking who called him, they built an extensive network of BMF associates. But missing from the map was Meech. Even as the web of affiliates grew, Meech had entirely isolated himself from his brother's operations. The task force considered whether to use what they knew so far about Terry and move forward with charges against only him, or if they should continue to try to connect Meech to the case. Ultimately, it was decided that the BMF wouldn't truly die if they didn't put both Meech and Terry away. They kept the task force running and the phones tapped. In 2004, Meech had drifted away from the day-to-day running of his drug operation. Instead, he was focused on his music label, BMF Entertainment. Though the label currently had only one artist signed, 2004 saw an uptick in their popularity. The World is BMFs, performed by Blue Da Vinci, became a hit on the Atlanta club scene. Soon, Big Meech and other BMF members were appearing on the cover of popular hip-hop magazines like Smack and The Come Up. To celebrate this success, as well as being cleared of the club chaos charges, Big Meech threw a huge party for his 36th birthday on June 21, 2004, just seven months after the shooting. Meech rented out an entire club, staging six-foot-tall neon letters spelling out Meech and an ice sculpture of the BMF logo. Everything was decked out in jungle-themed decor, including naked women painted in animal print. He spent $100,000 to rent an elephant, a few zebras, and a pair of lions. It was Meech's ego on display. He thought he was invincible and essentially dared the cops to come after him. He even put up billboards for BMF Entertainment to prove how untouchable he was. These billboards were a slap in the face for Atlanta's district attorney, Ran Chehi. Chehi looked like a character from Miami Vice with his tattoos, casual sport coats, and cowboy boots. But he was popular, known for hanging out with detectives and mingling with off-duty cops. He even volunteered to assist in police raids. To Chehi, the billboards were an opening salvo of war, a war he would win. The question was just when and where the next piece of evidence would roll in. Thanks to the wiretaps in September of 2004, police were able to arrest two mid-tier dealers and seize six kilos of cocaine and 15 pounds of marijuana. After raiding additional locations, they seized an additional $165,000 in drugs. After two days of interrogation, the mid-tier dealers gave up the names of their suppliers, Jeffrey Lair and Omari McCree, both BMF members. Police immediately set out to get wiretaps on both suppliers. Then, on October 20, 2004, Meech was stopped at a roadblock during a safety check. The checkpoints had been set up around the club neighborhood due to the high level of gang activity. When police stopped Meech at the roadblock, he presented a fake ID, as was his custom. But, fake identity or not, they found him in possession of marijuana. 
he was arrested and held in jail for two days. With Meech off the streets, even momentarily, police had the opportunity to see how his underlings would react. Thanks to the wiretaps, they were able to identify Meech's right-hand woman, Yogi, as well as a plan to move shipments to a drug house known as Space Mountain. The police didn't know where Space Mountain was, so they began tailing the suppliers they'd been tracking, Lair and McCree. For the next couple days, they stalked them, hoping to get a location on the stash house. As McCree wandered Atlanta, he grew increasingly paranoid. No matter where he went, he felt like he was being watched. Soon he limited his contact with everyone except for Yogi. He called her several times, worried that something was wrong. But each time, Yogi assured him that everything was fine, as long as he kept a low profile and stopped calling so much. Lair was also feeling the heat. Rather than wait around like McCree, he considered going on the run with his girlfriend, Courtney. But to do so, they'd need some cash. They decided to sell off all the drugs they stored in Courtney's apartment. Police heard all of this over the wiretaps. On November 5th, 2004, they arrested Lair and his girlfriend Courtney on I-75 just outside downtown Atlanta. They had 10 bricks of cocaine in the back seat. Investigators released Lair on probation. He was the closest link they had to Meech, and they were hoping he might lead them to incriminating evidence on his leader. Instead, both Lair and McCree went on the run. They had lost 10 bricks of Meech's cocaine and had no way to pay him back. Eventually, the police did find the safe house known as Space Mountain. They also found a man pulling out of the driveway, Ralphie Sims, a BMF transport worker. When police pulled Ralphie over, he gave them a fake ID. It ran clean and he drove away. He immediately told Meech that the cops had found their base. By the time police secured a search warrant on November 23, 2004, Space Mountain had already been cleared out. They'd burned their chance. Inside the house, they found a few guns and fake IDs, but no drugs and no big Meech. In fact, after Ralphie's tip, Meech had ordered that everyone go into hiding. He himself had left Atlanta for Miami, leasing a mansion in South Beach for $30,000 a month. He hoped the long arm of the law would give up once he disappeared, but more and more evidence was mounting against him, and the task force had almost all the pieces they needed to bring the BMF crumbling down. Coming up, we'll see how the task force finally broke the case. Now, back to the story. After a hasty exit from Atlanta in November 2004, Meech took up residence in a South Beach mansion. The change of pace in Miami allowed him time to focus on his music. Meech found legitimate work at a club called Crowbar in South Beach. He and Blue Da Vinci, BMF Entertainment's only represented rapper, played the club together for six months. At the same time, Meech invited the DVD magazine Smack to his Miami home to document life at BMF Entertainment. He hoped the magazine would show him in a different light, a businessman, not a gangbanger. The coverage was broken into several chapters, each highlighting different aspects of their music business. 
Meech hoped that the article would be a good PR piece, vindicating him from police scrutiny. But the noise of the magazine exclusive was drowned out by young Jeezy, who had also traveled to Miami for club performances. Jeezy had just launched his new music video, Trap or Die, and it was incredibly popular. It quickly overshadowed Smack's BMF cover and Meech's chance at legitimate fame. In June 2005, Meech faced another major setback. The task force finally caught up with Lair and McCree, the BMF suppliers they'd been tracking down since the year before. D.A. Chehi got a tip that McCree had surfaced in Atlanta's club district. Scrambling as fast as he could, Chehi drew up a warrant and had officers arrest Omari McCree, bringing him in for interrogation. McCree refused to say anything until his attorney arrived, but police told him he'd already sealed his fate by running a year ago. He now faced a litany of other charges on top of the original drug crimes. The best thing he could do now was cooperate. He finally relented. McCree laid out the history of the BMF as far back as the 90s. He confirmed that Demetrius Big Meech Flannery was the man in charge of it all. Two days later, another major bust was made. Across the country in L.A., the FBI and LAPD were able to track down Tremaine Kiki Graham, the mastermind behind BMF's drug-running vehicles, and Jerry J-Rock Davis, the head of the Sin City Mafia, a close affiliate of the BMF based in St. Louis. After an associate of Kiki's was arrested, he led police to a two-story house off Oso Avenue in Woodland Hills. Just after noon, they raided the house. Inside, police found 250 kilos of cocaine, four guns with scratched-off serial numbers, and both Kiki and J-Rock. Police arrested both men and brought them in for questioning. They told investigators that the house they'd raided was a safe house known as Third Base. They also gave up the location of another safe house called Second Base. For the next four months, as summer turned to fall in 2005, the DEA followed the trail, raiding every BMF safe house they could find. By October, they had arrested 17 more BMF members and seized over 630 kilograms of cocaine. million in cash, and another $5.7 million in assets, mostly cars and jewelry. As the West Coast safe houses fell one by one, Terry saw the end in sight. He fled L.A. for St. Louis, where his Sin City Mafia friends were stationed. Meech, on the other hand, kept pursuing his music in Miami. The raids were mostly focused on L.A., It was Terry's problem, not his. Meech had launched BMF Entertainment's own magazine called The Juice. It was a total flop, destroyed by critics for having little substance. And then in October 2005, police raided a BMF safe house in Atlanta called The Elevator. The Elevator was a townhouse just outside Glen Ridge in Atlanta. Its name came from the Victorian-style glass elevator inside. When the police arrived, the BMF was completely unprepared. Officers managed to arrest 30 BMF members and seize $3 million worth of cash, 2.5 kilograms of cocaine, and numerous firearms. 
A few of the men inside named Meech as the owner of the house. With this bust, the police finally had enough evidence to bring Meech in for good. Meech managed to flee Miami before the police came to collect him. He fled to Dallas, where he hoped to lie low. After years of invincibility, he finally knew the end was near. On October 20th, 2005, DEA agents were tipped off to Meech's location. They set up surveillance at the Dallas mansion where he was staying. By 10 a.m., they saw him wandering around by the backyard pool. By lunchtime, they had a warrant for his arrest. Police simply knocked on the front door. Shockingly, Meech surrendered without a fight, without even saying a word. Inside the house, the agents found marijuana, MDMA pills, and $700,000 worth of jewelry. Locked in a safe was a high-velocity semi-automatic weapon, often called a cop killer for its ability to fire bullets through Kevlar vests. A week later, on October 27, 2005, police tracked Terry down. He was hiding out in St. Louis in a small suburb off Jamestown Farm Road. When police arrived at the house, they could smell weed from down the block. When they knocked on the door, they found Terry and 15 other BMF members inside, in the middle of a poker game. Police arrested them all. Big Meech and Terry were both taken to Detroit, where their enterprise had began. They were charged with running a Continuing Criminal Enterprise, or CCE, which carries a minimum sentence of 20 years. Less than 1% of drug-related cases are elevated to this high a level. For a CCE charge, you have to prove that defendants had at least five subordinates, prove substantial gains were obtained through drug sales, and prove the defendants oversaw at least three drug offenses. This wasn't a problem when it came to Terry. Thanks to their wiretaps, police had hundreds of hours of tape implicating him in dozens of crimes. For all of Terry's concerns about Meech's high profile, he was the one who had more evidence levied against him. The police worried that without sufficient evidence to tie Meech back to the BMF's illegal activities, he'd walk. It was clear to anyone that he was the ringleader, but they didn't have the hard proof to directly tie him to any cocaine transactions. He was even let out on bail in Detroit provided he remain under house arrest. If they were going to put Meech behind bars, they needed more BMF members to testify. The first to flip was Arnold A.R. Boyd. He'd grown up down the street from the brothers and worked as their Detroit manager. He gave police details about the limos and vans with secret compartments they'd use to shuttle drugs across the country. Doc Marshall also started cooperating. He agreed to testify against Meech and Terry in exchange for a lesser sentence. With his testimony secured, the Flannery brothers' minimum CCE sentences were elevated from 20 years to possible life in prison. Over the next two years, more and more BMF members were either arrested, indicted, or both. By July 27, 2007, the total number of BMF members pleading guilty had grown to 49. Meech tried to keep up appearances while he awaited trial, even enjoying some visits from Akon and his old frenemy, Young Jeezy. 
he made Blue Da Vinci the COO of BMF Entertainment, gearing up for the launch of his sophomore album. But the album fell through, and the company shut down in the fall of 2007. Meech's dreams of music stardom were officially over. Meanwhile, Terry fell into a deep depression, losing close to 100 pounds in the span of a year. Without any money, his longtime girlfriend, Tanisa Welch, left him, taking their son with her. For Terry, prison was his absolute hell, and his resentment towards his brother only grew once he found out he was still hamming it up with celebrities. The feds hoped they could turn Terry against his brother, knowing the two were at odds. The investigators offered Terry a chance to help them convict Meech and escape what could be a life sentence. Terry was silent for a long time before telling them he wasn't interested. Frustrated, they sent him back to his cell. A few days before their trial was set to begin in November 2007, Meech requested a private meeting with Terry. It was the first time the brothers had spoken to each other since their split in 2003. Terry was ushered into a small room with his brother. The two men stared at each other for a long time. Finally, Meech spoke. He told his little brother to plead guilty. Terry was shocked. Meech explained that the odds were severely stacked against them. They'd had a good run, but it was over. If they pled guilty, they could at least avoid life in prison. Terry exploded on his brother. He was frustrated to hear this now, after he'd turned down a plea deal to protect Meech. Their old arguments about Meech's wild lifestyle resurfaced. Meech impulsively revealed something that his brother didn't yet know. The reason the feds had more on Terry than they did on Meech was because he'd been wiretapped. Terry was the one who was responsible for bringing the BMF down. Suffice to say, the meeting was a complete disaster. The brothers parted ways, their relationship worse than it was before. Later, their father, Charles Flannery, visited Terry. He was facing his own charges for using his son's drug money to pay for renovations on his house. He echoed Meech's sentiment, urging Terry to plead guilty. On the morning of November 19, 2007, Terry entered the courtroom of the Theodore Levin Federal Courthouse in downtown Detroit. When asked how he pleaded, he said not guilty. The judge accepted his plea and notified him that a court date would be assigned. But as Terry was ushered out, he stopped. He thought about how angry he was at his brother, how concerned his father had been. He looked back at the judge and asked if he could change his mind. The judge allowed it, and Terry pled guilty to all charges. He was 35 years old, and his life of freedom was effectively over. The Flinnery family was watching from the gallery. They breathed a sigh of relief. They knew that if he'd gone to trial, he'd most likely lose and face life in prison. Meech was arraigned next. The 39-year-old kingpin still had his confidence, standing tall in the face of his imminent destruction, smiling back at his family. He approached the podium and also pleaded guilty. Both brothers were sentenced to 30 years in prison. The reign of the Black Mafia family was over. Yet even with BMF's destruction, 
its legacy continued. Rappers like Young Jeezy, Jay-Z, Snoop Dogg, and Rick Ross continue to reference Meech and the BMF in their songs and videos. In Detroit, BMF graffiti still lingers around the Flannery Brothers' old neighborhood. Revered as a legend, Big Meech helped create the image of the lavish thug, covered in diamonds and glorious golden chains. Many also claim Big Meech and BMF Entertainment helped Atlanta become the center of rap culture in the South. And because of this rich legacy, the BMF has been the subject of numerous documentaries. In 2016, rapper 50 Cent announced that he was producing a TV series based on the BMF and that Meech's son, who goes by Lil Meech, was slated to betray his father. Lil Meech has also created a BMF clothing line with sweatshirts, t-shirts, and hats displaying the gang's logo as well as their slogan, Death Before Dishonor. He frequently posts on social media about his father with the hashtag FreeBigMeech. Meech and Terry are set to be released from prison in 2032. They'll be 64 and 60 years old, respectively. It's safe to say their drug-running days are behind them, but the Black Mafia family's legacy still lives on. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler, additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Michael Pindis and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.